It's time for Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, coming to you from the Artscape Theatre in Cape Town. I'm Cindy Moritz, and we're ringing in the new year with a stack of exciting and interesting reads handpicked by our team of reviewers. Penny Lorimer launches into the year's reading with three easy reads by best-selling authors. The Bitter Roots by C.J. Box, The Shape of Night by Tess Gerritsen, and The Inn by James Patterson with Candace Fox. Philippa Shavitz got all fired up in Nina Shan's Vegetarian Recipes and Reflections from a Country Kitchen and Pottery. And in a most exciting occasion for this station, Paul Wise interviews Rodney Trudgeon on his labor of love, Concert Notes, out later this month. Vanessa Levenstein enjoyed Tony Park's Ghosts of the Past, and Philip Todras spoke with celebrated cartoonist Jonathan Shapiro as he received a top French cultural award. Beryl Eichenberger recommends Breaking Milk by Dawn Garish, and we end off with a tribute to the late Clive James brought to you by longtime admirer Beverly Ruiz Muller. Penny Lorimer, tell us about your three easy reads. For those listeners who may still be on holiday, or for those who've returned to regular life and need to escape from it, this month I'm reviewing three easy but enjoyable reads by best-selling authors. The first, and my favourite of the three, is The Bitter Roots by C.J. Box. C.J. Box is an American author who started his writing career with a series of thrillers featuring Wyoming game warden Joe Pickett. Later, he wrote some standalone novels, and then a series featuring Cody Hoyt and his colleague Cassie Jewell, who now stars in her own series. Cassie is a former police chief who is struggling to raise her son, she's a single mother, and to manage the demands of her new private investigation business. An old friend asks her to help a young man who is accused of assaulting a teenage girl. Both the victim and the perpetrator are from a controlling and corrupt family, prone to violence and misogyny, and obsessed with maintaining the status quo. As Cassie investigates, cracks in the supposed victim's story begin to appear, and she soon learns that the family's need to maintain power goes beyond anything she could have imagined, and that getting to the truth of the case will endanger her own life. Once again, C.J. Box delivers a satisfying story, full of believable characters and dialogue and a very strong sense of place, this time the Bitterroot Mountains, part of the Rockies, hence the book's title. In The Shape of Night, author Tess Gerritsen presents a gothic thriller complete with a haunted mansion and a malevolent ghost. Ava, the heroine, is renting the mansion for a few months, ostensibly to finish writing a recipe book, she's a food author, but also to escape the guilt of certain past actions. Ava soon meets the ghost, which seems to be a manifestation of the house's creator and first owner, and is both repelled and sexually attracted by it. Then the discovery of a dead body, which turns out to be that of a former female tenant, interrupts her unnatural love affair. With the help of a local ghost hunter, Ava discovers that the victim is just one in a series of beautiful women associated with the house who have died mysteriously. Will Ava manage to come to terms with or become another victim of a strange and malignant torturer who may be a figment of her own remorseful imagination? It's a quick and weirdly cosy page-turner with elements of a cookery book, a mystery horror story and shades of grey that may keep you out of mischief for a few hours.
James Patterson is an incredibly prolific thriller writer who's published nearly 150 novels, of which around 114 have been New York Times bestsellers. At least five of these novels came out during 2019. Apparently, his mission is to prove that there's no such thing as a person who doesn't like to read, only people who haven't found the right book. He's given more than three million books to school children and the military and donated more than $70 million to education. He's also endowed over 5,000 college scholarships for teachers and won many awards, including recently the Literarian Award for Outstanding Service to the American Literary Community. I confess that knowing all this has made me feel more positive towards him than I did before. I've been a bit snooty about him in the past. I mean, how could anyone who produces so much and who co-writes so many of his books be any good? But I've surprised myself by enjoying the couple that I've read recently, one of which was The Inn, which is co-written with Candace Fox. The hero is Bill Robinson, a former Boston police detective who left the force under a cloud. He now runs an inn, which seems to be more of a boarding house, peopled by a dozen misfits whom he doesn't question as long as they pay their rent. But Bill discovers that escaping from his former life and city doesn't mean that danger has been left behind. A crew of criminals move into the small town in which his inn is situated, bringing drugs and violence with them. Naturally, Bill's sense of duty and innate decency compels him to fight off the threats to his town. But he can't do this alone and finds himself teaming up with his motley bunch of tenants to try and solve the problem. Like the other two books, this is an undemanding escapist read, perfect for the beach, bush, bed or even bath, if anyone baths anymore. The three books I reviewed were The Bitter Roots by C.J. Box, The Shape of Night by Tess Gerritsen, and The Inn by James Patterson and Candace Fox, all published in 2019. From the world of thrillers to the country, Philippa Schaeffitz, you read Nina Shan's All Fired Up, Vegetarian Recipes and Reflections from a Country Kitchen and Pottery. All Fired Up by Nina Shand, published by Milstone Pottery, McGregor. It's a collection of vegetarian recipes and reflections from a country kitchen and pottery, as clearly stated on the cover. For 25 years, Nina and Paul de Jong have been creating wood-fired ceramics at Millstone Pottery in McGregor. At their workshops, vegetarian feasts from breakfast through lunch are provided, always using local ingredients. The author acknowledges her mother, Helene Shand, for teaching her how to cook and for instilling in her a love for food and cooking. Some of the recipes in the book originate from her mother's cookbook, Mealtimes at the Mole. Some from Paul's mother, Avril Franks, a foodie and stylist. Others come from fellow potters, friends, or found on the internet and reworked. The recipes are organized into sections. Breakfast, tea time, lunch, dinner, desserts, plus one on jams, preserves, and pickles. Breakfast includes an easy, delicious muesli and homemade yogurt, Nina and Paul's daily choice. The muesli is used in rusks, a recipe from Henny Mayer, also a potter. Their son Joshua's recipe for cinnamon buns is here, plus their daughter Sarah's recipe for muffins, Dad's recipe for a brown nutty wheat bread. In tea time, there's a great-grandmother, Lena Kutsi's recipe for carrot cake, a treat that's always baked for family birthdays. Her mother-in-law shares her recipe for chocolate brownies. 
Her niece, Lan Butler, gives a recipe for vegan chocolate tart, learned while waitressing at a vegan restaurant. Lunch captures a delicious lunch served at workshops. A choice of nourishing soups in winter, seriously good salads in summer. In a subsection of main dishes, find a Russian carrot pie gleaned from the internet, an aubergine and tomato tart from Margie Phillips, one-time caterer and a member of Nina's book club, a cauliflower frittata, a blueprint for putting together a Buddha bowl, another for assembling the millstone salad, the best veggie burgers ever. Dinner includes vegetarian versions of babuti, curry, lasagna, chili, moussaka, a recipe for naan bread. Margie Phillips gives her recipe for Israeli chocolate cake. Other dessert irresistibles are tiramisu ice cream from Paul's mother, a lemon ice cream, cape brandy tart, and apple crumble. An extensive section on jams, preserves, and pickles. Lots of recipes using local apricots. A chili jam from a yoga teacher, Norman Serta, that's perfect with burgers. A how-to-pickle olive or preserved green figs from great-grandmother Liana Kutsia. Pickled eggs, curried beans, vegan mayonnaise. All the recipes are photographed and specially selected pottery. As a potter, Nina believes cooking and serving food on handmade pottery vessels enhances the food. She goes on to say, historically, food and cooking are intimately linked to the development of poetry. She writes that there is a dual challenge in making functional wear. It needs to both encompass an aesthetic dimension and be practical enough for everyday use. The style of pots we make at Millstone is based on historical precedent in the Anglo-Oriental wood-firing tradition. Firing with wood is environmentally sustainable, she writes, which fits with our personal life philosophy. At Millstone Pottery, we are concerned with minimizing the environmental impact of both our pot making and the way we live our lives. Not only a collection of doable, must-make recipes shared with enthusiasm, but a whole lifestyle. Even detailed information on glazing is included. The layout of the book is clear and easy to follow. Tick his jolly 
Shadow of Your Smile, sung by the a cappella group Take Five. If you like the sound of All Fired Up, Vegetarian Recipes and Reflections from a Country Kitchen and Pottery by Nina Shand, you're in luck as we have a copy to give away. All you have to do to win is answer this easy question. Where is author Nina Shand best? McGregor or McDonald's? Call in to FMR on 21 401 1013 and give us your answer. The winner will be contacted after the show. There's been much jubilation here at FMR on the occasion of the publication of our own Rodney Trudgeon's Labour of Love concert notes. Paul Wise spoke to Rodney. I got Rodney Trudgeon in front of me in two forms. He's sitting opposite me and I have him on the cover of a book. It's a very attractive book. The City Hall stage, you can see the organ in the background. There's a piano in the foreground and there's a beaming Rodney Trudgeon staring out at me. And the title of this book is Rodney Trudgeon's Concert Notes. And Rodney, you're going to tell me what is this book? What's it about? Who's it for? Well, Paul, thank you. It's quite an interesting little project because for many, many years, something like 25, between 25 and 30 years, I've been writing program notes for the JPO. First of all, the National Symphony Orchestra, Richard Koch got me started, which then morphed into the Johannesburg Philharmonic. And when I came down here, after a short hiatus, Louis Heinemann invited me to write local program notes as well. So you can imagine that I've built up quite an archive of program notes. So it's basically those program notes edited and put into book form. Many people have asked me to do that, and I have to say it's very exciting to see myself in real print. <laughs> I'm a broadcaster, not, a, not an author. Well, and who, who, what is the organizing principle of the book? I mean, how is it put together? You see, the thing is, Paul, that it's based on the sort of repertoire we hear in this country. So, for example, there's quite a little bit of Bach, only a little bit of Bach, because because of the performance uh, styles, we seldom hear much Bach in our symphony concerts. We also seldom hear much Bruckner with the large orchestras and Wagner tubas and even Mahler, although Mahler's got a couple of symphonies in there. But um, obviously I had to cut 
things out as one has. So it's basically the sort of repertoire that we see locally played by our orchestras and arranged in alphabetical order. Various people said, why don't you do, you know, Baroque, classical, romantic, impressionistic. But I thought then you've got to know, is is um, Debussy, is he romantic? Is he impressionist? Is he slightly modern? So I thought alphabetical is the way to go. And it is only orchestral music. So no chamber music, no choral music, and no instrumental music, purely orchestral music. And from what you've said about uh, the way it's organized, I get the impression it's not for, uh, not purely for professional musicians. No, 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 no. I mean, I sometimes am almost proud of the fact that it's not that it is that I'm not an academic. Um, I know someone once said to me, your notes are very nice and very accessible, but you know, I want to know more, more detail, more analysis. And I mean, the thing is that then you go to Google where you can do really in-depth thematic and harmonic analyses of these great works. These are designed for people who, who love music, who love the sound that it makes, to quote Thomas Beecham, and also who just want to know a little bit more, a few signposts along the way to listen to a symphony, what is sonata form and what does the first theme sound like and the second theme and um, the slow movement, what is that all about and what's a scherzo and what's a trio um, and what's a rondo finale. So I've written it in a way that I hope is slightly anecdotal and is also absolutely accessible to that dreaded phrase, the man in the street. And um, biographically speaking, the... um to what extent do you go into the, the lives of composers? I think you have to a little bit to put into context where that um, work comes. But um, people who look at the book will see that at the beginning of each chapter on each composer, there's a very short, what, three or four sentences, a paragraph about the composer. Because once again, you can look up the composer in your dictionaries and encyclopedias. So it's just to sort of set the scene. But then the body of a particular note would cover aspects of what that composer was doing at the time of this work's composition. So it's not a great historical biographical book. Its emphasis is on enhancing your enjoyment of the symphonies, the concertos and the overtures that we love and admire so much. And uh, why did it take you so long? It's, uh, <laughs> we know that you've been celebrating anniversaries of your broadcasting career. Um, why so long before you actually committed yourself to... I think the word that springs to mind is laziness. A number of people, both at pre-concert talks that I do and who have been reading the program, and say, you know, really you should put this into book form. And a very good friend of mine, Chris Nicklin, said, you know, you really should put this into book form. And so a number of people said, you really should put this into book form. And then one day, right here at FMR, the feisty Vanessa Levenstein, who is our copywriter, asked me a question about Gershwin, his piano concerto. And I said, just hold on, I'll bring you something. And I quickly printed my note on Gershwin's shirt. And she said, where did you get this from? And I said, come and have a look. I've got this whole archive. And she said, right, that's it. This is a book. And from that moment on, (laughs) she, shall we say was very forceful in getting me to perform, to edit, to select, and to collate all these things together. And I really owe her a huge debt of gratitude for actually getting me going, the sort of proverbial kick in the pants. And do you think uh, there there are more books in you? Do you think perhaps Vanessa will manage to extract (laughs) anything further from you? I actually don't, Paul. I mean, I've not ever considered myself as an author. I have thought how interesting it would be to write a kind of autobiography based on my career in broadcasting 
Because I've been lucky. I joined in 1976, two months after the Soweto uprising, and had to move to Johannesburg with my parents saying, no, you can't go to Johannesburg. All the revolution has begun. And then through that whole process of change up to 1994 at the SABC, and you know the SABC was famously a beacon of apartheid and to see all that changing. And I was lucky enough to work with some very famous people, like Paddy O'Byrne, Stephen O'Reilly, Christopher Bennett, um, B. Reid, Pat Carr, the great names of broadcasting. So I think there might be a little book lurking. I just don't know if people would be interested enough. Would you buy it? Oh, I'd uh, <laughs> like a shot. I'd hope to get a free copy, actually. Yes, <laughs> um, but I have heard you talk about this book as as something of a legacy. Well, yes, I think so. You know, you do think if you've devoted yourself, I've spent my career trying to demystify the great classics so that more and more people can enjoy them, so that you don't need a degree in music to know what's going on in a symphony. So all the talks and all the things I've written and all the broadcasts that I've done, I feel that this is a kind of legacy left behind of my approach and my style of uh, communicating this great music to a wider and more accessible audience of all ages, colors, all those things we have to talk about these days. Well, thank you, Rodney. The book's called Rodney Trudgeon's Concert Notes, a selection of favorite orchestral masterpieces. It's published by Jonathan Ball Publishers, and it'll be available later this month. Vanessa Levenstein enjoyed Ghosts of the Past by Tony Park, which transported her between Australia and Namibia, and back to the past, as the title suggests. The Namibian desert sand should be stained red with the bloodshed it has absorbed. From 1966 to 1990, under the apartheid regime, white South African boys were conscripted to fight in the South African border war. The horrors of this war were compounded by the question of South Africa's legitimacy to be fighting it. Anthony Ackerman's Somewhere on the Border was among many works that gave a voice to the brutal reality of what national service really meant. Yet the appropriation of Namibia dates back further, to 1884, when it was declared German Southwest Africa. In 1904, tens of thousands of people from the Nama and Heroro tribes died in concentration camps. These sobering facts are chronicled at the beginning of Tony Park's latest thriller, Ghosts of the Past. Spanning two centuries, it's based on the life of the Australian Edward Presgrave. Tony Parks is an Australian, a keen environmentalist, and served over three decades in the Australian Army Reserve. All these components form part of his narrative. He divides his time between Africa and his homeland and is clearly fascinated with the continent. The present-day story starts in Australia, where a recently widowed journalist, Nick, receives an email that would change the course of his life. A South African woman named Susan writes to him, seemingly quite innocently, requesting any information he may have on his great-great-uncle Cyril Blake, who fought in the Anglo-Boer War. At the same time in Germany, a historian named Anya is researching the origins of the desert horses of Namibia. On the surface, Susan's investigations seem perfectly legitimate, until both Nick and Anya's world are turned upside down. Random burglaries, ominous threats, and the disappearance of Susan add to the mystery. Nick, with nothing to lose, flies to Africa and continues his own investigation. The narrative rewinds to 1902, the end of the Anglo-Boer War. A long-lost manuscript proves Nick's Uncle Cyril, like the real-life 
Edward Presgrave, was a reluctant hero. Cyril is a soldier, deserter, cattle rustler and freedom fighter. To add what seems a prerequisite romance to the novel, Cyril is also ruggedly attractive with an equally desirable lover, the mysterious flame-haired Claire. The consummation of their passion against the background of flying bullets ticks all the war romance boxes. Nick, like Cyril, is searching for a human connection. The past and the present are linked not only by matters of the heart, but also by the pot of elusive gold at the end of the desert, President Kruger's gold reserve. The past catches up with the present in a heartbeat, linking places, people and plots with ease and suspense. The ghosts of the past, both humans and horses, gallop across the pages and remind us that the truth has a strange way of coming out, even if one has to wait two centuries. The success of a thriller is, did it keep me up all night? And the answer is, yes. If you're still on leave this January, this is a great holiday read. Remember to call in to win a copy of All Fired Up, Vegetarian Recipes and Reflections from a Country Kitchen and Pottery by Nina Shand. Simply answer this easy question. Where is author Nina Shand based? McGregor or McDonald's? Call in to FMR on 021-401-1013 and give us your answer. The winner will be contacted after the show. Fly me to the moon and let me play amongst the stars. Let me see what love is like on Jupiter and Mars. In other words, hold my hand. In other words, darling, kiss. True. In other words. 
were listening to Fly Me to the Moon, sung by our very own Louise Howlett. Philip Todras was intrigued to speak with cartoonist Jonathan Shapiro, who was recently presented a top French cultural award. It's that time of the year again, and Zapiro is at it again, and this time it's Which Side is Up? Cartoons from Daily Maverick, and it's published by Jakana. But before we, I start talking to you, Jonathan, I must acknowledge the top French cultural award you've just been given. And you're now a knight in the Order of Arts and Letters, which is quite intimidating for me. I wasn't quite sure whether I was supposed to salute you when you walked in. <laughs> Thanks. For I, I, you know, I, we, were, we were just having a little chat just before going on air about, uh, about languages and, and, and French and everything. I, I don't speak French at all, but I've learned to say... Chevalier des Arts et Lettres, which is the, a knight of, in the order of arts and letters. It really is a, it's a huge award and something that I would never have imagined. And, you know, it's not something I thought of or thought of receiving. Now, you don't have, nobody has to do anything. <laughs> I think we can applaud you. Jonathan, I would like to state from my point of view that I regard you as a very brave man. And without coats of armor and mail and all of that and horses and the weaponry that went with it, you have done an enormous amount in fighting all sorts of evils. So I think it is totally appropriate <laughs> for you to get a knighthood. Thank you. So congratulations to you. And really what I want to talk to you is, and I think we've often spoken about this, is the whole thing about cartooning, making people laugh, is not a laughing matter. It's actually very serious and very hard work. Yep, there's two parts almost in that question. The one is is that it's certainly not only about making people laugh. It's about sometimes making people laugh, and laughter is, I mean, the humor is the best of the many tools that we have. But cerebral jumps can be made in many ways, and that's what one's looking for. We're looking for a way of either changing someone's mind a little bit or putting something in a new perspective, showing it in a new light. And it, uh, if it's funny, it's usually the best way to to get something across, like telling it as a joke. And that and the twist is the thing that does it. it. It helps you see something that you thought of as one thing, you see it in another way. But that little jump that you can make can be made through other just purely cerebral things, just to show something in another, in another way, or you can shock someone, or you can use pathos or even bathos, where you, you you set something up and then there's an anticlimactic thing. So there are many different tools that satirists uh, use, and so humor is just one of them, but it is a great one. And the other thing is you mentioned the, the hard work. Uh, to construct those things, to find that kind of communication, is that's what one's always looking for, the, to find the ways to say it and to find the metaphors. Um, metaphors these days, can a lot of pop culture comes in, but uh, you can use biblical things. You can do all sorts of things. It's, a, it's actually a lovely genre of communication. But a challenging one. Yeah. Because a lot of people complain that you too often cross the line between what's okay and what's not okay. And how do you respond to that? Oh, I'm very happy that they say that. <laughs> <laughs> because if you don't cross the line, you're, you're not challenging people. And the other thing that's almost unstated in the way that people think about crossing the line is 
that they're only thinking about their line. And their line maybe so so they maybe love most of the cartoons I do, but uh, let's say they are Jewish like me, and they don't like the cartoons that I do on Israel and Palestine, where I really push hard and I support Palestinian rights and I'm against the Israeli occupation and a whole lot of things. Then they say, "Oh, you crossed the line. You, you in a way you've stepped out of the and what I consider a kind of accident of birth, sort of tribal approach that uh, that I'm supposed to." to adopt the line that maybe the majority of Jews would adopt. Absolutely not. I'm supposed to be able to look at things much more dispassionately and make up my own mind. Somebody else, uh, I mean, a Muslim person might tell me I've crossed the line for a Prophet Muhammad cartoon that I once did. And they, some of those people are very supportive of the things I do about Palestine and, and, and things I did in the struggle. And then there'll be political people who tell me I've crossed the line in a, a certain kind of de- depiction. But look at all the people who they are defrauding through corrupt actions. And the majority of people in the country might look at the cartoon and say, no way. You know, you, 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 you're supposed to be there to push those guys off their pedestals. So, you know, who's lying? I like that. In fact, that whole thing about the only constant in life is change. So getting people to change, one of the things you're trying them to do is to push those lines, to just not be satisfied perhaps with where they are, where they, as you said, cerebrally their, their minds mm. might be at, and trying to see things in a different way. Exactly. Yeah. That, and, you know, of course, one is trying. I was, I was just doing a long in-depth uh, interview with somebody who does who's looking at aspects of power and and he was talking about speaking truth to power and truth about power and I thought that was very interesting we had then and we had a long discussion about that so some of the time I'm trying to speak truth to power in the sense of actually saying in your face, guy, whoever that is, and look at this and see what you're doing and be shamed by it. But many times there are people who've gone so far beyond the pale that you're not even expecting to be able to influence them or make them change their minds. You're just helping the other people who are trying to make their minds up about what they're doing and, and shift the debate, however fractionally, however tectonic, however the tiny those little tectonic shifts are in, in, in debates. That's what you're trying to do. And we hope you're going to manage to do that because going through your collection, which covers a year, especially from September to October, September, September each yes, year. Yeah, something like that. Um, you know, may I say that last year hasn't been particularly funny? Well, that's uh, there have been many years that haven't been particularly funny. And the, and the thing is that I've got to find i'm i'm as i said earlier i'm trying to find things that are funny or that are th- things that are are sharp hard tough and i hope i mean in in that sense i don't even think about last year as being much different from the previous 9 years okay we hope we can look forward to a brilliant coming here the way you th- look at things and the way you make us rethink things i think are very important we've been speaking to Johnson Shapiro also known as Zapiro the book this time is Which Side is Up? Cartoons from the Daily Maverick. And we really do have to recognize the way he makes us rethink what is. Beryl Eichenberger devoured Breaking Milk by Dawn Garish, a book set mainly in the Eastern Cape about motherhood, separation and estrangement and how the decisions we make impact on those we hold dear. Have you ever considered the amount of thinking we do throughout the day? 
mulling over issues, decisions to be made, contemplating work or chores, hearing those inner voices of dissent or encouragement. The continuous stream that goes through our minds is so often unconscious thought, awareness only acute when the issues we face hammer to be heard. Breaking Milk by Dawn Gerrish takes us into the world of protagonist Kate over one seminal day. We follow her thoughts, many of which will resonate, and enter the rooms of her mind on a day that is fraught with anxiety, high emotions, confrontations, loss, and ultimately acceptance. This is a book about motherhood, separation and estrangement, and how the decisions we make impact on those we hold dear. It is thoughtful, incisive, and moving, and at its heart full of joy as it centers on relationships between humans, animals, and the environment, leaving you with satisfaction, yet many questions. This is Gerish's seventh novel, and she uses all her very impressive skills as a writer, poet, playwright, mother, doctor, and member of the medical humanities movement to set the scene. Her characters are sharp, with personalities clearly defined in the lines she gives them. Beautifully constructed words place us on Kate's path as we step with her on this one-day journey. A former geneticist, disillusioned by the ethical questions posed in her job, Kate has returned to the family farm in the Eastern Cape and has become an award-winning organic cheesemaker, while also running a restaurant alongside this enterprise. Meet the grumpy and brusque cat, who assists her? Her father, Da, is succumbing to dementia and cared for by the gentle young African, Elishle, but is Kate's major responsibility. Kate's divorce from the manipulative writer, Leonard, a subject of much anguish and cause of estrangement from her only child, Jess, has separated them in an almost irreparable way. Nosisi, whose son, Lazuko, is in the bush undergoing initiation, she has her own fears to deal with. Uniting these mothers as they contemplate their children as they work side by side. Neighboring farmer Daniel is in love with Kate, an emotion that she does not return. And then there is a visit from the ex-husband who seemingly reaches out to her. But what makes this day different? Jess, living in London, is the single mother of conjoined twins and the planned separation surgery is on this day. She has forbidden Kate to come to be with her during the operation. For Kate, the routine of the farm, the discipline of her cheesemaking, her relationship with her goats, allow some semblance of normality as she goes about her daily business. But her emotions teeter on a scalpel edge throughout the long hours waiting for news. Garish has the vision to show the connections and separations that are part of all our lives. It is a beautifully crafted book, the words so carefully chosen that you don't want to miss even one. You live and breathe the story. Her talent lies in teasing out the layers that make up our lives, and it is this that makes the story so profound. It is almost as if Garish has a stethoscope plastered to Kate's chest listening intently to the heartbeat of her life and has a scope in her brain monitoring the waves of thought. In the final pages, a charming chat to her goats, each of whom she addresses by name, chronicling their idiosyncrasies while coaxing the precious milk from them, is a simple delight. The book has a rhythm that is all-embracing. A quick but superbly satisfying read, which will entice you back to more thoroughly explore the depth of the narrative and the messages it contains. Oh, and if you want to know what breaking milk means, 
page 22. I must also congratulate new independent publisher Caravan Press for the very thoughtful design of the cover and easy-to-read text layout. This contributes greatly to the reading pleasure and for buyers is a promise of a book that will be reread and treasured. It's your last chance to win a copy of All Fired Up, Vegetarian Recipes and Reflections from a Country Kitchen and Pottery by Nina Shand. Simply answer this easy question. Where is author Nina Shand based? McGregor or McDonald's? Call into FMR on 021-401-1013 and give us your answer. The winner will be contacted after the show. Once I met a happy little bluebird I was just as blue as I could be In a little while I began to smile When he sang this merry song to me Just let a smile be your umbrella On a rainy, rainy day And if you're sweet, he cries Just tell her that a smile will always pay Whatever skies are gray Don't worry or fret A smile will bring the sunshine And you'll never get wet So let a smile be your umbrella On a rainy, rainy day Let a Smile Be Your Umbrella, sung by Cape Town crooner Harry Curtis. Beverly Rosemuller was deeply saddened to hear of the passing of Australian critic, broadcaster and writer Clive James. She pays tribute to him here. The news of Clive James's death last year, author, scholar, media personality and humorist, was a blow in a year of losing loved ones. It's interesting how attached we can become to people we haven't met, something he would write about himself in an essay marked Requiem about the death of Princess Diana. Clive James, CBE, was a large personality, a gifted writer and poet, media darling and scholar, 
and one of the funniest men around. He was born in Australia in 1939 into a humble family. His father survived a Japanese prisoner of war camp in World War II, but tragically died on a freedom flight home. After graduating from university in Australia and spending a year working on a newspaper, Clive arrived in England with a bang, brimming with burly energy and irrepressible optimism, where he lived all his adult life. Flinging himself into almost every activity he could while juggling a degree in Cambridge, he became friends with such legends as Eric Idle of Monty Python fame, the historian Simon Sharma, and Jermaine Greer. His first real prominence came, oddly enough, from his weekly television column in the widely read British newspaper The Observer from 1972 on. A young upstart with a dry wit, he was the first to recognize that TV considered the poor relation of movies, not only wielded powerful influence, but was also a barometer of social means. His deadpan articles were so widely read that they were eventually turned into collections, which I still have, and are remarkably readable to this very day. He had a knack of nailing a character, such as when he described Arnold Schwarzenegger as looking like a brown condom filled with walnuts and the romantic novelist Barbara Cartland, twin miracles of mascara, her eyes looked like the corpses of two small crows that had crashed into the white cliffs of Dover. Unkind, yes, pretty funny too. Critics of his columns and his later memoirs warned that to read Clive James in public was to risk making a spectacle of yourself as you collapsed laughing. But behind the comedy was a perceptive and agile brain. Fluent in Italian, able to read French, German, Russian, and Spanish, he published a translation of Dante's Inferno, which was well-received. He was an honorary fellow of Pembroke College in Cambridge and published many volumes of poetry, some of them serious, others with his deadpan humor. One of them in 2003, taking its title from his poem, The Book of Mine Enemy Has Been Remaindered. He was an omnipresent media commentator and presented television and radio shows on travel, motor racing, tap dancing and tangos, social and political commentaries, and all the many areas of life that fascinated him. But he may be best remembered for his five autobiographies, starting with unreliable memoirs of his early years in Australia and his long-suffering mother. It is so excruciatingly funny that it remains the only book I've ever read where I actually fell out of bed laughing. It was unfortunately the son of his childhood home that produced the cancer he would die of lingeringly over nine years. That and his early habit of smoking so heavily that he filled a hubcap with butts every day. Even his terminal illness was brilliant and funny. His exquisite poem on his impending death, Japanese Maple, is considered to be one of the finest and most poignant of all his works. At the time, he grinningly recalled in an interview a letter from an irate fan who complained that he'd been waiting for news of Clive's imminent death for years, and, well, why was he still alive? After his death on November the 24th last year, he was given a quiet funeral in Cambridge by his two daughters and many friends before the media had been alerted. Clive James was a marvellous one-off. He often said that he had lived a happy and lucky life. 
He made us think and laugh, and his work will continue to give us pleasure for all the years to come. What a great legacy. Yes, she's got the guys in a world But she's only fooling one girl She's only With her eyes of night and lips as bright as flame Tangerine, when she dances by Senorita stare and caballero sigh And I've seen toasts to tangerine Raised in every bar across the Argentine. Yes, she has them all on the run, but her heart belongs to just one. Her heart belongs to Tangerine. Well, well, that's a powerful start to the new year. And if you've missed all or part of the show, or want a reminder of the books we've reviewed, go to our website fmr.co.za, where we post the Book Choice podcast every month. Thanks to Mawande Lobi for production and Rick Everett for the inspired musical interludes. Matinee is up next after the news, and we're leaving you with the sounds of Days of Wine and Roses. Played by pianist Albie Lowe. A happy new year to all. <laughs> 